Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you and happy and hearty New Year. Thank you, Stephen. And the same back to you. I I do want to give you a a quick alert that if you hear some odd Uh, sounds coming from my part of the studio, it's because there are two owls sitting just outside the studio and they appear to be talking to each other. So that's that's not me cooing at you. Okay. I just wanted to make that clear. Okay. So (laughs) now that you've shared that, if you do hear that audibly, can you make sure that we can pick it up and share it with our listeners? And my only other question is, do you have an owl box? We do not, but we live on a canyon, and so the, the window outside the studio is, is on that side of the, the property. So my guess is they're out there uh, in the natural habitat. Okay, they're fascinating creatures, and we'll take the topic of owl boxes up some other ni- nice day. How's that? That sounds perfect. So happy New Year to you. Same to you, Mitch. And, you know, Mitch, new year, new laws. We've done that before. We've talked about new laws at the start of a new year, and I think that's what we'll do again today. Sounds like a great idea, and there are no shortage of them this year in California. That is true, and uh, we have chosen for today the topic of Prop 64, which is formally known as the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, and we will take that topic on today, and we're, of course, doing it because there are Big changes on the horizon, as all of our listeners know, and uh, this will then parlay in or ripen into a discussion of new laws that we'll probably take on in a a separate segment because there are so many of them. But uh, I think we should take on the issue of uh, Prop 64, the uh, outgrowth and the changes that are coming, and of course the need to make many, many adjustments, right Mitch, all the way across the board. No question about it. This is probably one of the most impactful and significant changes in law that that we've seen in decades. And and I say that and someone could say, oh, how could that be? But what we're going to talk about today is this brings up so many issues. The, the things we've talked about in other topics, the conflict between federal law and state law, the issues between you know, civil issues and criminal issues. Uh, it, it takes uh, an entire menu of, of complicated laws that are both at the state, the county, and the individual municipalities and tries to create this whole new fabric of, of laws regulating cannabis. So it is extensive and will probably change it, the, the life and the landscape nationally, because California, as we've talked about before, is the sixth largest economy in the world. So when we make a commercial change, it resonates not just within our state borders, but across the country and across borders. Yeah, it, it absolutely, Mitch. I agree with that. And we have in the past talked about the stakeholders And I think it's uh, apt and appropriate to uh, revisit that issue in terms of impact of the passage of Prop 64, which did go into effect on November 9th of 2016. Uh, And now we're in a position where uh, many of the stakeholders need to be, first of all, quite knowledgeable and well-versed on the laws. uh, And... With that comes the need for adaptation and a lot of changes in many, many ways. Uh, We have talked about, and I think a lot of people focus squarely upon the end users, recreational users 
when they think about Prop 64. But as you've mentioned, there is a wide range of issues connected to the commerce, the sales, and uh, the regulations connected to recreational uh, use and sales of marijuana, whether it be uh, medicinal-based or uh, recreationally based. And just to put it in context, Stephen, this is... It's estimated that there may be as high as a 13 to 14 billion, that's with a B, a 13 to 14 billion dollar illegal market that has surrounded California alone, just California, for marijuana. The estimate is that with the Prop 64 taking kicking in January 1, 2018, with the recreational use joining medical use as being legal in California, that seven to eight billion dollars of that will now be the legal marketplace in California. So, so you're exactly right. This isn't just an individual being able to go in and now legally buy an out, buy and possess an ounce of of marijuana in various forms. This is a seven to eight billion dollar commercial enterprise. Yeah, absolutely, Mitch. And your reference to uh, government oversight uh, makes me think about the tax consequences or the revenue side of this uh, and whether or not the taxation will actually create or somehow enhance uh, black market sales. And that, that's, you know, it remains to be seen what happens um, in that area. Uh, I just visited Colorado over the holidays. And as you know, and as we've talked about before, Colorado was ahead of California in time in being one of the seven states that that have authorized recreational use. And so it was fascinating to see the proliferation of the the dispensaries, because that's what most of us see, the retail side of it. But the, the estimate in California is that the state of California anticipates it may receive up to a billion dollars. I mean, we keep rolling out these billion numbers, but a billion dollars in state taxes, and that doesn't incorporate all the local franchise and business taxes, sales taxes, excise taxes, all of the things that are being embedded within the the different uh, strata of tax authority. Yeah, no, absolutely, Mitch. And if I can just provide just a very brief overview of Prop 64, Mitch, because I think it's interesting. Many people uh, may have voted uh, for Prop 64, and they may not recall with pinpoint precision um, all of the details connected to it, because if you recall the voter uh, pamphlet on Prop 64, there was a lot of fine print connected to Prop 64. So, Uh, I think it's probably good tonic to just kind of go over a few of the aspects here. Uh, Prop 64, which is formerly known as the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, legalizes the following conduct by persons age 21 or older. So it has uh, legalized possession, possessing, transporting, purchasing, obtaining, or giving away to a person age 21 or older without compensation up to 28.5 grams, which is one ounce of marijuana, that is not con- concentrated cannabis and or up to eight grams of concentrated cannabis. It has also legalized smoking or ingesting marijuana or marijuana products. It has also uh, legalized possessing, transporting, possessing, obtaining, or giving away marijuana accessories to persons age 21 or older. So there's the reference to um, one of the retail aspects involving uh, accoutrements or um, accessories used to ingest marijuana. There is also penalty implication, implications, Mitch, which we've talked about before, um, which really comes in the form of significant reductions in penalties. There is also an aspect that we'd like to discuss today too, Mitch, and that's the Bureau of Marijuana Control, which was the built-in language that actually implements or creates a means by which marijuana can be tracked really from field to end use. So from seed all the way to use, and that's a good topic to take on. And then lastly, Mitch, if I may, before I run out of oxygen, (laughs) uh, it is the uh, business and professions code, um, which is another significant issue 
that gives different municipalities and counties the option or the right to craft and design rules that are niche specific. And with that, I have created a menu that should last until midnight. <laughs> You're absolutely right. So it's it's just it's almost staggering the the various elements that that kicked in January 1st. So so let's let me talk just a little bit about the Bureau of Cannabis Control uh, because it's it's just a fascinating uh, rollout of new law. So that that bureau has the oversight on behalf of the state, just like you said. So it's a state law that went into effect. But that bureau also then will coordinate with the other jurisdictions. So the basic infrastructure is that the state law said that each jurisdiction has a choice. So a community, at the community level, city level, they could either pass an ordinance that prohibits, regardless of what happened January 1st under state law, they are entitled under Prop 64 to prohibit the sale and uh, manufacturing and grow or cultivation, as they call it, of cannabis products in their community. They're still allowed to do it, and a number have. Uh, there's a couple of the local communities right around here, right around the law school, that have prohibited it. Uh, Sand City, it's a very small community, absolutely still illegal to have any commercial activity in Sand City. At the next level, the counties are allowed to pass regulations, uh, ordinances, for the unincorporated areas of the county. And then if, if neither of those two have taken the initiative to create their own local laws, the state laws then overlay, overlay that. So, so to, to answer what is legal where someone is sitting right now this morning, you would actually have to, number one, look at your local ordinance, if you're not within the jurisdiction of a, a city or town, you'd have to look at your unincorporated county ordinance. And then, in the absence of that, you would look at the, the, the outgrowth of Prop 64, which are the new regulations. Yeah, you know, Mitch, I'm hearing you recite uh, the Bureau of Marijuana Control uh, aspects or uh, sub-areas of regulation makes me think of the quip or proverb uh, a little knowledge, and I'm going to corrupt it, is not a dangerous thing. And <laughs> as far as themes go, <clears throat> you know, if we can have a PSA kind of portion of our show where we actually do um, share some public service wisdom, um, it definitely pays to know the laws. And if you, as you've just indicated, there are a lot of them. And you didn't even reach the issue of cultivation, which is one that we can get to because that also falls under the Bureau of Marijuana Control, and that is this idea of tracking uh, the grow industry from seed to end user all the way through. And as you can see in some of the recently released stories, it looks like that system is not fully up and running yet. Right, Mitch? A absolutely not, because it's so complex. Uh, but, but just before we go to the break, so what we'll come back and talk about is the Bureau of Cannabis Control splits out licensing and regulation into cultivation, manufacturing, distribution, retailing, laboratory testing, and micro-business. Each of those are completely separate regulatory regimes. Yeah, yeah. Which, which once again means that there's a lot of reading to be done. <laughs> yes, right? and some of this, some of the regulatory details weren't published until late November of this year going into effect January 1. So in some cases, there, there was as little as six weeks' notice of what the laws would be effective January 1. Yeah, and, yeah, and the, the next segment, we can reach some of the issues of what Prop 64 did not do. In other words, what rules, uh, cardinal rules, are still in place and should still be enforced uh, because that's also an important segment or something we should reach, which might include a little bit of myth-busting because and, there are still regulations. That's right. And before we even go out to this first break in these last seconds, we probably should have started at the top of the show saying it's all still illegal federally, period, end of story. 
Good point. Put the <laughs> hammer down. We're going out on a break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We'll be right back after this short break, and we will continue our discussion of Prop 64, the legalization of marijuana. Don't go away. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistance, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our topic today is New Year, New Laws, and we've kicked off with a discussion about Prop 64, the legalization of marijuana, formerly known as the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, and our discussion has led to uh, the topic of controls, uh, Mitch, and, and some uh, issues that pertain to the actual tracking uh, of the product. Uh, and let, let's pick up with that topic, Mitch, about what this, this idea of actually having the ability to track and to treat uh, marijuana uh, like a crop, which in essence uh, it is. Yeah, that's one of the fascinating parts about all of this, Stephen. It's that this this new regulatory scheme borrows from both the food safety aspect of laws and the drug safety aspect of laws. From the food safety, you're exactly right. They're following what has been thought what has been called a farm to table model. And and we've talked about it before. We actually did a show on who's liable when there are these uh, food foodborne illnesses and uh, let's say tainted spinach that came out of Salinas Valley and it turned out that it wasn't the grower at all, it was the adjacent farm when there was uh, tainting in the water system. So I mean, all very complicated. It's exactly the same for cannabis growing. 
it's an agricultural product now in California, and it's going to have to follow all of the same cultivation rules that food products have because ultimately many of these new products are ingested. So it's not just smoking a joint as, as we might think. It's cookies and brownies and creams and tinctures and uh, candies and gummies and all of those things that are ingested uh, have to follow the rules of food. So it's going to be tracked by barcode from the grower through the processor, through the manufacturer, to the retailer, to the customer, so that if you end up with a tainted product in your possession, it ought to be easily scannable and tracked all the way back through the entire life life cycle of it. You know, Mitch, there you go tripping the tort wire again, and I knew it was going to happen because I was about to ask, why do we track? Why is there a need to track? And it's kind of interesting to look at that issue. I think the, the reason we do it, or that there's a tracking mechanism in place, um, there, there's obviously numerous reasons, but one is to be able to establish origin and potentially to establish fault in many ways, right? That's exactly right. And so then let's look at the other half of it, which we've, we've talked about in other shows, which is the drug side. So we have that entire scheme of regulations that are going to track food safety. But let's not forget that this is a Schedule One narcotic under federal law, and the state laws recognize that there, there is, is a medical use of this, which is a, a different application. Uh, California's had... Uh, some form of medical use permitted for decades. So that part's not new. But the scrutiny, the testing, the reporting, the labeling, the doses, uh, the content, all of those things have now gone, just skyrocketed in their, in their intensity and their depth uh, for every single step along the way. So it's been being tracked and treated on that side just as if it were a drug. Yeah, and, and I, I think there's a many sound reasons for tracking it, Mitch, and the one that I mentioned just to, to uh, highlight the issue of, of fault should something go awry in the process down the line. Uh, but like we see in any kind of products cases, we've talked about it within the context of tort law. If a product is defective and someone's injured, an end user is injured, there's always a need to go back and track origin to see if there's other parties in that so-called fault line or if there's liability or culpability. And uh, there's the added, I think, uh, purpose here in terms of regulation is, is revenue-based. I mean, we can't ignore that. That's exactly right. But let's, before you leave that, that piece related to torts, remember we did a program on opioid the opioid crisis, and it was triggered by a lawsuit that was being brought against a, set, a series of doctors who they believe were uh, over-prescribing without proper reg- regulation of it. And then they claimed that the information they were provided by the drug companies were inadequate or didn't highlight the risk of opioid addiction. Therefore, the doctors didn't properly limit their their uh, prescriptions of opioids therefore the individual became damaged and we've had you know, horrible horrible outcome from that so let's overlay that onto the drug side of cannabis and it becomes even more interesting Stephen because even though there's a medical side it's such a nominal tie to doctors and traditional medicine that you don't even have that intervening advisory role of the doctor. I mean, you can get a medical marijuana card from the back of a magazine for 15 bucks online. And in theory, there's some type of a doctor intervention that says, yes, your sore back would qualify you to have a medical marijuana card, but there's no requirement of a personal interview, even a personal interview, let alone a doctor's visit, uh, there's no formal prescription process. for. Yeah, you're, you're right. Virtually no consultation component, actually. No. So 
I do anticipate that we may see more of that, but but it just shows you how volatile and flexible and emerging this entire aspect of the law is going to be. Yeah, you know, Mitch, the, the one other issue I just wanted to get out uh, is, and I reached this on the uh, open very briefly, is that uh, the passage of Prop 64 uh, did not signal uh, the demise of certain rules and laws. And I just wanted to get this out because I think it really is important. Uh, there are still prohibited acts connected to marijuana, and i just like to list some. Um, smoking or ingesting marijuana in a public place, that still uh, is uh, criminalized. It's actually codified and it can be punished. So, so wait, wait, wait a minute. Now you're telling me that there's limitations of what could be done at a concert? Uh, there, there can be based <laughs> upon whether or not that municipality's got a no smoking in public. So if you can't smoke cigarettes in public, you can't also smoke marijuana. All right, there you go. Another one, another one, smoking marijuana where tobacco smoking is prohibited. So those two are tethered. Mm-hmm. Smoking marijuana near a school, daycare, or youth center. Uh, open container or package of marijuana in a vehicle, vessel, or aircraft. So you've heard of the open container laws connected to alcoholic beverages, right, Mitch? Correct. Correct. Same rule applies uh, with respect to marijuana. Uh, in regards to an open container. Another one is possessing, smoking, or ingesting marijuana on grounds of a school, daycare, or youth center. Um, So that has uh, a direct connection to where the activity takes place. Uh, Another one is manufacturing concentrated cannabis using a volatile solvent. So that, in essence, is uh, engaging in activity that enhances the impact or the potency of marijuana that can still be uh, prohibited. Another one is smoking or ingesting marijuana while driving, boating, or flying. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait. It's, it's interesting that I've mentioned DUI, but are you serious? Flying had to be added to that? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Another one is smoking or ingesting marijuana while riding in a vehicle, boat, or aircraft. So that one governs conduct or activity of a passenger potentially all right um so those are those are some of the the more important ones that i wanted to get out and of course Nitch, the the main point i wanted to make there was that impaired driving laws are not have not been affected in the sense that there's any kind of whittling or um uh, uh liberalization of the rules connected to driving under the influence. So driving under the influence of any kind of substance that causes impairment still remains uh, illegal. I thought it was interesting that all across the holiday period, many of the electronic warning boards that are along the highways and freeways in California had the same message. Uh, Driving high gets a DUI. Yeah. Notice the same thing, Mitch. I, I was actually happy to see that because I think, you know, uh, with with great knowledge comes great responsibility. Um, again, I'm kind of corrupting a proverb or a quip, and I think that's an important message uh, to note. And and as I said before, I confidently, um, well, I'm I'm hopefully optimistic that. This will come with a lot of responsibility because the message should not be that it is uh, okay to drive a vehicle while under the influence of marijuana, whether it's prescribed or not. That's exactly right. And I, I, think, I don't think we can say enough that every time when we've talked about uh, DUI as an issue, and we've repeated it because it's such an a, a important message, that it doesn't matter legal or not. You can be guilty of... You can violate the driving under impairment laws while on a perfectly legal prescribed medicine. So that the the fact that this became legal did not change that aspect of the law at all. It didn't, Mitch. And, you know, what it has created, however, is a need for uh, education on the topic of how to detect 
marijuana impairment. And that is a subject we've taken on before. Um, and that's one of these issues that I think is, is going to remain um, rather complex within the uh, law enforcement community. Uh, and certainly, certainly my role as a prosecutor in working on cases where impairment is caused uh, by marijuana or what we call polysubstance abuse, which would be the combination of, of several intoxicants. So uh, there are measures underway to increase law enforcement's awareness on how to detect impairment connected to marijuana. Uh, we don't have a per se limit yet on marijuana. We talked about that once before briefly. Uh, that may be coming. You know, it's a controversial issue, but it, it may be coming. Well, and, and I, I, I just am amazed at how difficult, every time we talk about that part, how difficult it's going to be uh, for law enforcement to absorb all of these different aspects of the new law and both from the enforcement of the ordinances of the state law the regulation of DUI. Let's, let's not forget on the civil side, and we, we haven't really talked about it, but part of Prop 64 and the new regulations still allow employers to have a drug-free workplace. So employers are still allowed to do drug testing and are still allowed to have uh, regulations related to being, in work, being at work uh, while you're impaired, uh, drug use while you're at work, I mean, those are still really complicated issues that have not completely been resolved. It's one thing for the law to say that an employer has the right to do that. It's another thing for an employee to say, I have a legal right to do the following act, and unless it is impairing or impinging my ability to do the work that I'm doing, you shouldn't be able to ask or impose that as an employment condition. Yeah, that's a good point, Mitch. Let's pick back up on that topic um, when we come back from this next break and also maybe weave in the topic of the rights of municipalities and counties to have their own separate rules and regulations and uh, some of the challenges that I think that brings because we talked about transportation and movement of the product itself uh, and, and that has a host of complicated issues also. So when we come back from the break, we'll pick up on those topics. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. Our topic today is New Year, New Laws, and we've started the discussion around Prop 64, the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, and some of the uh, niche areas and subtopics connected to that new law. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. <laughs> If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. 
Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. It is a new year, and with that brings new laws. And if you are just joining us, our discussion has been centered around Prop 64, the Adult Use of Marijuana Act. And Mitch, before the break, you had addressed private sector and the rights of private businesses to still uh, implement or use measures to detect marijuana use or to govern what happens in their private business. Now, let me just talk about two things that are most likely to impact folks. First of all, just as I said, Prop 64 did not change an employer's right to do drug testing as a condition of both hiring or continued employment. It, it probably muddied or cha- created new challenges, particularly in the area of medical use that some people have. They say, I'm, I'm entitled to do this because I have a medical condition. I think there's still a lot of discussion to be had about how that will be enforced. But it fundamentally did not change employment law, which is the employer's right to say, I can test you before employment and I do not have to hire you if you fail the drug test. And that could include marijuana use. Okay. The second thing I think it should be key is that if there's a no smoking policy in your lease from if you're a a tenant either in a business or a home this didn't change that either so you you're not entitled to smoke marijuana in a, a pro, on a property if there was a smoking prohibition that preceded this and there are those those are the conditions in in commonly are involved in rental agreements because landlords don't want to have to repaint, recarpet houses and apartments after a smoker's been there. Uh, Same thing at the workplace. We all know that there's strict restrictions on on where and when you can smoke, and this hasn't changed any of that. All good points. So let's let's go back to this issue of, uh, before run out of time today, and we're only scratching the surface, obviously, because as we said, it's a very complex law. But I love the idea that you brought that there was this distinction between you know, local, county, and state. So, so let me just point out that why would it be that somebody uh, might go to a, have been going to a medical dispensary in California, and then the question is, can you then, can now anybody go to any medical dispensary and now just get recreational use since it's legal, right? But that's not really the way Prop 64 rolled out so that the new licenses are now state licenses and the state licenses distinguish between a medical dispensary and an adult use dispensary and you could have both. But if you only had a medical license, you still cannot sell to someone just walking in off the street without a medical marijuana card. So that dispensary will need to have applied for a different kind of license with the state of California in order to expand their business. Some have, 
many will not. Their business model was to be medical dispensaries. They did not want to be in the recreational business. And so they're going to continue on that limited license. And if you walk into one of those and they say, let me see your medical marijuana card, and you say, wait a minute, it's legal. (laughs) I don't need anything other than proof that I'm 21. They're going to say, not under our permit. You'll have to go to one of those other dispensaries. So, So that's... That's a key item. But let me say one more thing, because this applies across all of these different licensing types. It's going to make this very a very fluid situation for probably the most the rest of 2018. So the state passed the law that you had to have all of these new licenses, even if you were previously permitted by the local jurisdiction. But the problem was, this was such a massive overhaul that the... Bureau of Cannabis Control wasn't ready to start issuing the permanent licenses. So now there's that risk of a gap, Stephen. Here you're a perfectly permitted, licensed, legal medical marijuana distributor or cultivator, December 31st. The new law says, okay, fine. You have to have a state license January 1. Oops, We're not ready to issue the state license yet. What were they going to do? We've talked about a governmental taking and the government takes an action that that takes away from you without compensation. Were they just going to shutter their doors until the state got around to organizing? Yeah, so Mitch, you're speaking to the issue of the the fact that the state isn't fully prepared or ready with their protocols on the, the tracking system, right? Not just the tracking, it's the permitting. You don't okay, even get so, to the tracking yet. So, per, so permitting also. So you're, 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 you're speaking well beyond just the farm to table. You're actually talking about license, licensing. License to do the business legally. So they weren't ready. And so I thought they did, they handled it very deftly. Uh, what California did is it said, okay, mea culpa, we're We've been working on this for a year. We're just not ready to go yet. We know we just can't put these people out of business. We can't have them all be illegal one day later, even though the law says they're doing what they're doing is uh, eligible to be legalized. So they instrumented an interim step, which is a temporary license. And so every every uh, cultivation, manufacturing, distributor, retailer, tester who was properly licensed at the local jurisdiction as of December 31st was able to file a one-page application along with their proof of local authorization and it was really a ministerial process which means they, the state didn't do any investigation they just assumed that if you're legal at local you're eligible for a temporary state license, and that bought the state 120 days. So the temporary licenses are good for 120 days, and they are renewable if that, if two things have happened. One, if the state hasn't gotten their act together in 120 days, or two, if you've already submitted your full application for a permanent license, and the state hasn't hasn't uh, reacted to it, hasn't granted it yet. So they they created this interesting, which I thought was a pretty clever way to solve their problem. They created this interim temporary license. That's the the kind of mechanism. And so that's why if you go to a dispensary, because most people aren't going to visit manufacturers or most people won't be visiting the cultivation either. But if you go to a dispensary and there's a sign on the doors I saw here locally just this past week, and it says, we will not be offering adult use recreation until, and then there's a date in January. What that tells me is they've applied for their temporary license. They just haven't gotten it yet. As soon as they get it, then they're going to be good for 120 days with the opportunity to extend another 90 Okay. Well, I'm glad you shared that, Mitch. That's interesting. So it's really, it's a, it's a grace period that's established. And you had mentioned that you thought it was deftly done. I now see why. 
Um, and what jumps out at me is that uh, that measure probably stemmed the tide of potential lawsuits. Would you agree? I would, I would absolutely agree. And let me tell you something. Let's go back to something else you said, Stephen, about transportation, which is a really challenging issue in all of this. I, I am concerned that there are some who were legally permitted in their local jurisdiction as of December 31st who did not read the new law carefully and said, well, I'm just going to wait and apply for my permanent license. And, you know, if it takes a couple months for me to get that, no big deal. I still have my local permit. So should anybody know, anybody in the business, this is their, this is our, our free suggestion, since we don't give legal advice, they need to read the regulations because in my read of the regulations, that behavior will not be legal. So somebody who might have been able to legally transport from point A to point B as of December 31st, but didn't get a distribution license, temporary, and now tries to do the same thing that was legal December 31st, could absolutely be in violation of the current state law after January 1st. Yeah, good point, Mitch. So that's a, that's a straight-up, no-chaser, caveat, emptor message there, which I, I, I would think is absolutely sound, definitely. And on that same front, Mitch, if I may, uh, just share that there is a business and professions code section uh, that I should share, and that is section 26200, 26200. And that permits local jurisdictions to adopt and enforce local ordinances relating to marijuana activity. And that's directly on point with what we were talking about um, in terms of the mix of laws, including but not limited to zoning and land use, business license requirements, reducing exposure to secondhand smoke, and completely prohibiting the establishment or operation of one or more types of business license under new division and there's another subsection there but the point I'm making there is that this is so widespread Mitch that it's now included a business and professions code statute to reach the issue which is really a loud and clear message that it's an industry it really is an industry and a crop and uh, it certainly pays to be knowledgeable of all the laws that uh, are potentially triggered. Yeah, and, and just in our last moments here, just to help people try to understand why it seems so confusing. So, for example, in Monterey County, Monterey County in the unincorporated area, Monterey County has passed their county ordinance. It says that cultivation can only be done in greenhouses, and it limits the square footage of it. There are other counties that will have county ordinances that say they allow outdoor grows as well. And they may limit the number of plants or they may limit the acreage that's allowed to be grown. And so adjacent counties could have very different rules. There are some municipalities that are silent as to manufacturing and yet allow dispensaries. There's some that will allow manufacturing and dispensaries but have prohibited cultivation. So we're really going to see... Uh, I guess the best way to say is a patchwork quilt of laws once you start layering in the local, the county and the state. What what I do ask, Stephen, I know I, I always launch one last one for, but something for you to think about because we'll have to do another program as it rolls out. I'm a little unclear about somebody who is fully legal with all their licenses everywhere from cultivation to distribution to retailing and they drive from a, what in alcohol would have been a wet county through a dry county back to a wet county. Uh, someone stopped in that interim space. What is the, what is the regulation going to do there? Mm -hmm. So choice of laws, conflict of laws is the topic that you're bringing up um, in the form of a big giant bomb at the end of our segment. <laughs> <laughs> But no, it's great. You could just put something new on the plate. It's New Year, new laws, and we've already shared we're going to return to that topic.
So let's uh, let's close with a reminder that for those in California, in their complex laws, you should go to the Bureau of Cannabis Control website for getting information about both the consumer use as well as all of the commercial regulations of it. And a final reminder before we sign off, none of this changed the federal laws at all. It is still, cannabis is still a Schedule One narcotic under federal law. And that's going to affect banking, insurance, transportation across state lines, and all of those things. Absolutely. Great show, Mitch. Thanks, Stephen. As we remind you each week, you can hear an archived version of today's show at, at voiceamerica.com business. And we always suggest, particularly in this case, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistance, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com.